Hello and welcome to the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. The Oregon Wine History Archive is located at Linfield University in McMinnville, Oregon, and is dedicated to preserving and sharing the Oregon wine story. This podcast shares these stories through oral history interviews we've conducted throughout the industry. Please enjoy today's episode. My name is Rich Schmidt. I'm here with Joel Gunderson. We're at Cooper's Hall in Portland. It's June 23rd, 2020. Joel, thanks so much for joining us today. Uh, first question, uh, why wine? Uh, <laughs> that's a big question. <laughs> it right? is a big question. Well, um, well, professionally speaking, I guess I had a daughter. I was a broke poet in my 20s. and. I had a best friend, Chef Aaron Barnett, with Restaurant St. Jack, um, who was goading me into exploring wine as a professional career, mainly so that we could open a restaurant together. And so I, I would say, why wine? Two reasons. One, I had a good friend who believed in me more than I believed in myself. and. Um, I had a daughter, and I didn't get into the graduate programs for poetry that I was hoping to, and so wine. <laughs> wine is a safety, right? <laughs> um, but I mean, obviously, restaurants, wine, food, uh, it all falls into a particular romantic vision of life, and I would say that. Uh, I'm a pretty big sucker for a romantic vision of life, and I try to live my life within a romantic vision, I guess. Uh, as in, how can, how can you live your life to the full extent of your own imagination uh, and, and push forward with imaginative force and, and, and wine uh, really was a great avenue for that. So tell me about, you, you kind of brought up a little bit, tell me about pre-wine life. You had, you had divisions of being a poet. Yeah, I mean, that never goes away, right? That's, that's those delusions. But um, yeah, so I, 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 my parents were missionaries. I grew up in the Philippines. Uh, before that, in the 80s, uh, my dad had bought a tent, and he did evangelistic crusades throughout the United States. Uh, prior to that, we were in Afghanistan when the Russians invaded. And so we were in Kabul when they dropped bombs on Kabul. And um, so I came back to the US with dreams of being a poet, went to college, was a broke artist, fell in love, moved to Portland, eventually married that girl, still married to her with three children. Um, yeah, so I spent most of my 20s slinging Rubens at Cornblatt's Deli and writing poetry and uh, then when I had a daughter it was go time and ended up working three jobs. Went through the uh, ISG, International Sommelier Guild program for to, to get credentials. Of course, I think they went out of business so yay. <laughs> Money well spent. Uh, but no, I mean, so yeah, it was, it was uh, it was really kind of that relationship with Aaron that pushed me towards uh, thinking about my love of food and 
love of wine more more seriously. And so, tell me about the tell me about Restaurant Saint Jack and and about getting into that part of food and wine. And, and at, at what point did you? Were you intrigued enough by wine to, to go down that path, to, to go to the ISG, to go to take those steps you needed to, to become a SOM? Right. Um, I talked Aaron into moving to Portland. Um, I would say Restaurant St. Jack was a six-year conversation that involved a lot of drinks. And so we would drink, we'd hang out, he would, you know, he, he was, he did his externship at Lumiere up in Vancouver and then went down to Gary Danko's in San Francisco and then helped open a restaurant in Palm Springs. And so I would go visit him in these different places. We would drink a lot. We would talk about how we needed to open a restaurant together someday. And uh, I talked him into moving into Portland. He talked me into becoming more serious about dining and food food and uh, I stodged at his space in the, his kitchen down in Palm Springs and um, also here in Portland but then he hired me on for a server and then front of the house manager and uh, at the different locations that he worked at and then um, he got fired from 23 Hoyt during the last downturn actually. Uh, because they had it, they wanted 23 Hoyt to be an upscale restaurant, a fine dining restaurant. And then, of course, uh, the downturn happened and the recession, and so they let him go and reconcepted that establishment to more of a casual bar or an upscale bar sort of situation. Um, and then, um, yeah, that that next year we were just planning restaurant. Actually, I guess a year and a half planning restaurant St. Jack. Uh, I worked at New Seasons Market. I got out of restaurant for a minute, worked New Seasons as a wine steward. Um, and then we kept dreaming and asking people to put money into our dream. And um, I found an investor. He found Kurt Huffman with Chef's Table. And he partnered with Kurt, uh, hired me on. And then, uh, then we found the location. The, the original location was on uh, Southeast 21st in Clinton. And uh, the landlord was a contractor. We, he failed. So the last month before we were open, I, my first day of work was December 1st. Walked into a space that was in complete shambles. and. Basically, Kurt, Aaron, the sous chef at the time, Graham Cheney, who's, and um, one of our line cooks, uh, we finished the build out together. And uh, all of us lost about 20 pounds because we, we literally had no money. So we all pretended to each other like we might have money and could go out and grab a bite to eat for lunch, but none of us could. So we, we're just working these like 12 to 16 hour days and uh, you know, going home and wolfing some food and having a drink and passing out. Uh, but that was, that was kind of the behind the scenes of the hope and a prayer that was Restaurant St. Jack. Uh, 
we often joked later that the build out for the one of the bathrooms at Ava Jean's cost more than our entire opening budget at, at Restaurant St. Jack. Yeah. <laughs> Which actually I think cost comparison is true. But. So once it opened, what, and prior to, what was the dream? What was it you were trying to achieve and, and did, it, did it come to fruition? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I mean, in the years of discussion, Aaron um, had gotten more into the sort of gastro pub idea. And when I was studying to become a Somme, I started studying the sort of Lyonnaise Bouchons. And I was like, oh, Aaron, I'm studying these Bouchons. This actually seems like what you're talking about, but like a little truer to the source. Um, and sort of like in this, I guess, postmodernist idea of resurrecting or things that, you know, there were a lot of people doing, or not a lot, but there are people doing their takes on French food as opposed to trying to find these sort of like classic dishes and translating them over into the, into the American <clears throat> palate a little bit um, without, without, as, without as much sort of, uh, of a personal stamp on it, I guess. Um, so um, a classic example of that from St. Jack would be the pied de cochon dish, um, which is a, um, it's a pork shank, and, or just the, 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 the trotter, basically, and the shank would be there. But we pulled out the shank. We would confit that, make a shank confit dish. Um, and then we would take the, the skin uh, from that, that shank region and the trotter, too, and we would, we, would, um, we would cure it for a couple of days in a salt brine, and then we would then wrap veal, use it as a sort of basically a, a casing for veal sweetbread, and uh, bind it with chicken mousseline, throw some cremini mushrooms in there, let that set for two days, and then uh, in the original recipe, um, or the original vision of that dish, you would just roast it off. So, what Aaron did, he would just rub, he would just roll it in um, breadcrumbs to give it a bit of a crunch, and so it it held the essence of the dish, but it it provided a little bit of a crunch, just to just so the dish wouldn't get lost in translation and. It wouldn't be this like lovely French gelatinous <laughs> mess that maybe sounds good in a novel, but not great on your plate. So uh, I mean, I like that kind of stuff, but not not everybody does. And that just like little tweaks like that. So um, and so I, a lot of that just came out of conversations that we had through the years. Um, interestingly enough, so we're here at Cooper's Hall. This is a keg focus winery. Um, the whole keg focus for me started when we opened Restaurant St. Jack in 2010. And it came about because um, Kurt Huffman lived in Lyon and actually helped open a brewery in Lyon. Um, and he said, well, you know what we did? We went to Beaujolais and we just sourced wine and we'd bring it back in bag and box and then retrofit it into a, a cask. So it looked like we were pouring out of cask. And so I started talking to people, and um, 
think it was in a conversation with Patrick Taylor, and he's like, yeah, I don't want to do that. He's like, but have you ever considered maybe kegs? I hear people are doing that. So I think Irving Street Kitchen was doing it at the time. I reached out to the wine buyer for, for Irving Street Kitchen, and they, they were co-owned by a, a place down in San Francisco. Um, talked to her, she gave me her insight. We planned our sort of program off of that, but we didn't have any money, and so, um, <laughs> and so I started calling around, asking how much kegs cost, and like new kegs were 95 for an, an empty shell, and it was right at that time that they were converting from the squat pony kegs to the slimmer six barrel and slimmer quarter barrel, and um, <clears throat> so. There was kind of like a, a dearth of, there was no kegs available, and if I could get them, they cost more than the budget because I needed 25 kegs to open the wine program, and we didn't have 2,500 extra dollars for kegs. So I was on the internet looking up kegs, and there was a place called Kegs to Go. And I called them, and I said, hey, you know, would you, be, would you sell me empty keg shells? And they're like, yeah, sure, we'll do that. I'm like, well, how much? They're like, well, $25. I'm like, I, I can do that. I can afford that. I'm like, well, how many do you have? And they're like, well, we have like five. So I went down to Kegs to Go. It was way out on 122nd and um, Division. And it turned out to actually be a strip club called the Double Dribble. And it was like the dirtiest, most seedy strip club in the world. I had actually never been in a strip club before, uh, but there I was at 10 in the morning in a strip club buying kegs that I was totally illegal, totally illegal. They were selling me Budweiser kegs, and it wasn't theirs to sell. Um, and so for like the next two months, I was buying kegs that kind of fell off the truck from the double dribble. And basically the wine program at St. Jack and every keg wine program for all of Chef's Stable is built off of me going to the Double Dribble and buying totally stolen kegs. Yeah. That's incredible. That's incredible. That's, and that was, I mean, that was, that's what St. Jack was built on too, just stories like that. And so I, I think our dreams did come true. Um, it was hard, you know, it was a hard three years. It's hard being the GM of a restaurant that is your best friend's dream and vision as well, and being, um, running the books, running the sanity of the space, and being the emotional support of your best pal too. And so, um, but after two and a half years, Kurt asked if I would partner with him on this project. Um, which at the time was being called Bulkhead, and it was going to be a keg project, and so of course I was the keg guy by then. By then I had helped open Oven and Shaker and um, helped consult on a number of the other chef's table restaurants. And um, I said, yeah, I would love to be a part of that project. We just have to change the name. And so. I was the last person to become a partner here at Cooper's Hall, and I was the one that 
made everybody change the name. Yeah. I just didn't like the idea of like bulk head being bulk, anything be associated with the wine that we were going to do. And so it's like I knew that we were going to be in this large format thing. I had spent three years of dealing with keg wine and kind of dealing with the, um, the pushback from the wine community, the sort of snootiness around wine culture, the sort of um, all the sort of bullshit trappings that happen with wine. And, but I, I, I just, to me, bulk signifies low quality. And um, my vision for keg wine with St. Jack and with every location was always talking people into putting wine that most people would think has no business being in keg and keg, you know. So um, two years ago, I think, three years ago maybe now, uh, one of my dreams came true with talking Doug Tunnell into putting his gamay into, uh, into keg. Um, this year, John Paul finally put his Clo Electric Blanc into keg. Uh, and so, you know, there, there's going from the strip club to Clo Electric Blanc. Uh, <laughs> it's been a good 10-year journey. <laughs> I'm curious about, before we get more into kind of Paul and sort of post uh, uh, St. Yeah, sure. I'm curious about the education part of it for you and, and what about what about wine kind of intrigued you and what it was you were, what, what it kind of fulfilled for you? What, what, what about wine education and about building programs like this? What, what, what was the fulfilling part for you? What excited you about it? Right. Um, as far as like the sort of ISG program that I went through, it was a, it was a good program in that it, it, it was more academically focused. It wasn't, um, it wasn't like tableside focused. And, so actually just getting that foundation of really boring information that you can lean on and you know memorize, kind of put as part of like something you can take for granted, I guess. You know, I think uh, when I went to college, they told me that education is a luxury. And, and I do see even the wine education as that sort of luxurious aspect in that like I can talk smack about court of masters or any sort of wine program that builds a particular lexicon around wine. But the only reason I can do that is because I actually did receive an education. And so um, in a sense, it is that education that kind of gives me the power to, to have sort of this base level information that, that, I, can, that I can use as warfare later on. So, uh, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> um, so, I mean, that was, that was, it was a painful process for me during that time because I, I was working three jobs. It was the recession. I did have a newborn baby and I was going to class nine hours every Sunday. So working six days a week um, and, and, and kind of relinquishing a dream of going to school for writing and, and um, trying to figure out, you know, hearing people say, well, wine is poetic, wine is art, and, and I was like, is it though? Like, is it? Like, poetry is, poetry is art, like, poetry is amazing. I, I don't know if wine can, um, wine can do that. And so, um, 
So I think in that moment, there was definitely sort of this existential crisis that I was going through, kind of, uh, I mean, how hilarious is that? Like giving up one completely unnecessary thing for another completely unnecessary thing. You know, it's like, well, that's, that's pretty funny. Uh, and so, um, yeah, and uh, I, I think like in that time, uh, writers like Andrew Jeffords, who uh, I think he writes with Savour now, but he wrote The New France way back in the day, uh, finding these, these writers who were writing about wine, not just in a sort of a really awful, painful way, but um, really giving life to it was really important. And, and then um, with Restaurant St. Jack, trying to build, you know, I think this was in 2010, so like trying to build a more Vonda Pay narrative, trying to say like, hey, there's these regions that are overlooked and let's start thinking about them. And, um, and while that is complete accepted knowledge now, that was not accepted knowledge back in 2010. You know, right? Uh, I think the last decade has just moved wine into a, and broken down so many barriers within within how we think about wine. Um, but I, I felt like, you know, as far as the education was concerned, you're always, always looking for you're always looking for benchmarks. You're always looking for like, well, this is how it should be, and here's the typical. And um, obviously, the fun thing about getting into a program originally that leaned on sort of the Vonda Pay, leaned on Beaujolais. I remember when we did our first Oregon Nouveau uh, Festival at St. Jack with Scott Frank with Bow and Arrow and Tom Monroe with Division. I think it was 2011 or 2012, and people were just like, what the hell are you guys doing? Like, Nouveau? That's stupid. Like, and I was like, I think that was the first year that Foyard made a, a Nouveau too, and so I actually had some of that, and I was pouring Foyard Nouveau for people, and, and it was just like people from the wine community who showed up for the event were just like kind of laughing about the fact that we were doing Nouveau, and I was like, well, here, drink this, and it was, it was a beautiful young Cote de Pie, and it's like, oh, well, that, that is actually quite good, you know, <laughs> like, and so, um, so I think, um, Again, though, I think having the education allowed me to then begin to have fun and then begin to push, um, push the boundaries. When I was in college, I remember when my professor says, we said, we learn, we learn the structure of the English language so that we know how to break the rules. And I would say that I think that's probably the most, that's what I like to tell my my teams, you know, when, when I'm doing staff education for wine programs, it's like we can have this basic information, A, so we don't look like an asshole tableside and make a fool of ourselves, because that sucks. And there's always going to be some jerk at a table that's going to try to make you feel bad. And um, so we want to protect ourselves from that jerk. And then second, so that we can have fun and we know how to break the rules, we know we know how to buy, you know, I, for people in the, in, the, in the hospitality industry, it's like, look, you might, this is a part-time gig for you probably for five years and you're gonna go on for the rest of your life. But if you know how to buy wine really well for the rest of your life, 
that's a great thing that I can give to you right now. And so it's, it's just, um, um, sorry I'm rambling, but. It's uh, a great answer. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm, I'm curious then, um, was, that, was it almost immediate in terms of formal education and then immediately deconstructing informal education? Was that, was that, was that part of the, your initial process or did that, was that a philosophy that evolved as you evolved? No, I mean, like, in the formal education, like, I think uh, finding people like Foyard, finding people like uh, Maste Damaskasak, uh, you know, and then back in 2010, Maste Damaskasak was, like, not old and stodgy. It was still, right, it was still, like, uh, wow, that's pretty neat, and they're breaking the rules, and, um, and, and just the conversation between Von de Pey and AOC, and is it more important to celebrate tradition of a region or uh, break the rules of a region and, and, uh, and getting into sort of some of the more social questions of wine um, started to intrigue me right away. Like with Beaujolais, like here is a wine that has been a peasant's wine. But when the aristocracy needed it, they utilized it. And then they threw it away again when they didn't need it anymore for more arist aristocratic wine. Um, so conversations like that like, really began to intrigue me. And, um, and to be able to utilize wine to think about social structures, think about <clears throat> our view of wine, what's reinforcing sort of social bias. Why is it more, why is an aged wine better than a young wine? Why do we put weight and money on that? Um, so th those things really started to, to, to intrigue me pretty quickly, you know, and, and obviously if you go down that rabbit hole, well, because the people who can afford them also have to afford the capital to store them. And so if we're thinking back through the history of wine, here's the peasants who don't, here's the aristocracy who did, and, and of course, the taste of the aristocracy is always the most important. And so, um, yeah, so I think pretty quickly I started thinking about those things. And obviously it's, I didn't have these kinds of full thoughts about them then, but I, I, was, in, I was intrigued. I, I, I told my t teacher with ISG when I finished, I said, I now have a nice sophomoric understanding of wine, and I'm looking forward to the next 10 years to actually learn what the hell I'm talking about. And so I would say 13 years after that, I feel like I don't know what the hell I'm talking about. Obviously, being in a wine project with Evan Martin with Sadness and Gamay and Sadness and Chardonnay humbles me. I go out there, and he tells me about what we're doing with the wine, and I feel like an idiot. And uh, you know, my winemaker, our winemaker partner here, Phil Kramer with Alex Ali Vineyard, I go out and work with him and he tells me about soil structures and what actually happens with the plants and I feel like an idiot. And so, uh, yeah. <laughs> so 13 years later, sophomoric still, uh, yeah. Jack, and then mm -hmm. as you went forward, how did you kind of negotiate 
what should be maybe on a wine list versus mm -hmm. what you wanted to have on a wine list versus what the, the jerk of the table would expect to be on a wine list? Yeah, 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 yeah. And I not to denigrate guests or anything. But no, I, I understand. There are just a few of them out there. Um, well, the original vision of St. Jack was to build a Lyonnaise Bouchon that was down and dirty and full of soul. Um, so from the onset, it gave me the opportunity to build a soulful wine list that was filled with self-expression. Um, so originally, and when I was the Psalm general manager who was on the floor six nights a week, um, that wine list, I was able to um, build it as a personal expression. And, and, and I learned a lot through it. And so I'd say like building that wine list was an education in itself. Um, I also had to abandon price points that I hoped that we could sell wine at and um, understand that markups are for real and they're there for a reason. Otherwise, my friend doesn't get paid because he's the chef owner and he's the last person to get paid in the building. And so um, building that balance of a cool wine list and, uh, and making sure that your margins are in check uh, was a very personal thing for me because uh, I knew my, my buddy's mortgage was on the line. Uh, and and that, was, that, was, that was a good trial by fire situation. Um, but getting into hospitality, the hospitality of, of St. Jack to um, the funniest thing was that it was a French restaurant and my wine list was too cheap. And I had people coming in and they wanted, they wanted baller wines. They wanted, you know, they, they wanted cocherie. They wanted these things. And so, like, they wanted rouleau. They wanted, so hunting down kind of a glass pouring tampier so I could get a rouleau allocation. Things like that started happening. And so, um, <clears throat> kind of that, I wasn't expecting that. And, um, you know, start starting to chase down, like, Chateau Palmers and things like that for your Bordeaux drinkers. Um, but then also making sure that that yellowtail profile was on the list too. I mean, low acid, high fruit. Um, so I had a guest come in and when I went tableside, they let me know that they didn't like Italian wine because it was too high in acid and you need food with it. And I said, well, thankfully you're in a French restaurant um, but French wine also tends to be high in acid, so thank goodness you're about to eat dinner, uh, which is a really shitty thing to say to a guest. But I actually didn't, I, 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 I steered them towards the Cote de Rhone and we found something, but I was like, actually I need something just like a little juicier, a little, a little, um, a little less expressive, I guess, or, I'm not going to say what region I sourced that wine from, but I, 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 it was this it was on this side of the pond for sure. Uh, but uh, yeah, it, it. I think those are the things that you can't can't be taught, and that has to that comes from being engaged with guests and going tableside, uh, and maybe getting your ass handed to you once or twice. Um, by like a Josh Bergstrom who comes in and wants to just 
drink well and you not having anything for them and uh, <clears throat> um, but them still being very gracious about it and I, I think those are the those are the those are the those are the ones where you're like well that person was super sweet they weren't a jerk at all but I really didn't have what they were hoping for in this experience and so um, that's really what shifted my mentality towards wine list building towards an extension of hospitality. And so we, we and, and hospitality does have personal expression. The hospitality does not mean that we're some sort of automaton that panders to every wish of the guest. That's not what hospitality is. Like hospitality is always set by a particular set of cultural signifiers inside a particular space and, um, and adhering to them um, and giving graciously out of yourself within that. Um, so um, I would say the, some of the greatest hospitality that I've received in my life was in barrios in the Philippines. Um, or, you know, my mom was a missionary and she works with Filipino midwives and delivers babies for the, the women in the, in the barrios around where we lived. And um, being on a jeepney, which is a public transit there in the Philippines, and sending money up to pay the jeepney driver and having him send the money back and say, no, non-Igeri, your money's no good here. And so, so understanding that you know, when we talk about hospitality, a lot of times people say, like, well, what's hospitality? And people would be like, attention to detail or knowing your stuff. It's like, in some ways, it's giving, giving from the heart. And so um, obviously within restaurants, it's a combination of many of those things. Um, but attention to detail, knowing your stuff without anything heartfelt, I think is garbage. And <clears throat> It's fine, but it's not. Um, it's not what I want to do. Or I, if, if, if more people put that little extra heartfelt thing into it, or the desire to be vulnerable into their lists, I think it'd be important. Um, that said, curating lists for different places, like oven and shaker, understanding where the space is. I would say that was another learning curve when I opened oven and shaker because Kathy Wims and I concepted the list. But it was an east side list and not a downtown Portland list. And, and really, it took years to kind of modify and understand, hey, there's no reason not to give people known wines, you know, Chianti, Barbera de Alba, but still celebrate really special stories from special producers. So it was a way of kind of shifting, again, my thought structure and saying like, hey, like let's let's do provide let's do provide comfort for people, familiarity for people, uh, but still push a particular agenda of quality wine and producers who are practicing organic or biodynamic or um, and then and then having some some room for exploration as well. So like, you know, where St. Jack was a list that was 95% personal and exploration of an shaker became 95% familiar with 5% exploration so that so so that there was just like a little bit of a fun thing or like a, a fun little like coast wine on the list that 
was super cheap, and so any wine nerd would be like, oh wow, that at that price? Like, you know, well done, rewarding people uh, for, for knowing their stuff. Um, and then, you know, just odd experiences, like I helped open a restaurant in um, Jackson Hole, Wyoming, learning how to navigate Wyoming liquor laws from three from a few states away and uh, pouring through um, all of the importers' FOB lists, translating FOB to landed costs, understanding shipping times all remotely, um, and then going out for like four days to do six hour trainings with uh, people that would rather be skiing, uh, but really sweet, sweethearted kids. That was, that, was, that was cool. And then turning right around and opening Omerta, which was a full-on vanity project from Gordon Sondland, our dear friend, Gordon Sondland. Uh, <laughs> uh, and suddenly having like a $75,000 budget to put a list together and hunting down things and, and, and interestingly enough, having it was the Jackson Hole space that was weird and wonky, and being able to pour through uh, what importers actually have as opposed to what was available on our market, that I was able to pull together that list and um, bring things onto market that didn't exist in Portland. So to have a restaurant that had wines that no one else had, uh, it all came out of years of relationships with people and then also actually pouring over, pouring over wholesale catalogs, and, you know, and, and, and all that stuff is important, you know, like uh, when I get away from seeing what's current, on a, on seeing what the price points are, um, which is easy to do in a program like this, um, because I'm just working directly with a lot of winemakers, uh, then you are, I, or I am, I have to let go and re-educate myself that too so there's like that primary education but there's a constant education of what's happening on the market uh, who's currently st stocking what uh, how are you going to navigate um, price points are you going to work with certain distributors based on philosophical differences are you going to suck it up and play with the devil here and there in order to get what you need over here or just support one little person that's in that brand. Um, so I, I think uh, ten year, a decade after St. Jack opening, it, it's, it's a constant, constant education as far as each year presents a different sort of new dilemma. And new new learning curve. I'm curious about your, your definition of hospitality is, is intriguing to me, and, and, and I'm curious about when it comes to you. You talk about the kind of established you have established set of rules, established set of, yeah. of for social for social engagement. Um, <clears throat> how far do you how far do you compromise? Do you bend out of what your you, Especially thinking about like you talk about your downtown location, your downtown yeah. restaurant, and having to like shape, reshape that list. Okay. How far do you bend to to a customer expectation versus 
this is the vision we have for this place and take it or leave it. Where, how do you sure. walk that line? Yeah, I, I think that's going to change dramatically in the next few months, actually. Um, I remember one time at 23 Hoy, this is obviously 13 years ago, uh, I had a, a charming gentleman in who was just appalled that we didn't have Heineken. And I went back to Chef Aaron and I said, hey, I, I want to I run up the street to the Plaid Pantry and buy this guy a Heineken. And so I, I did. I went and bought a six pack of Heinekens and I said, you know what, I actually just, we don't have it, but I went up the street and I cracked open a Heineken for you. Um, so I think I think that hospitality does exist within a particular cultural framework. Um, again, you can be in a diner and have great hospitality. It's just you know, it's just very salt of the earth service, and it's very different. And the expectations around it might be a little bit different. Um, you know that story I told of not having that sort of yellowtail structured wine on my list, I actually tell it during staff training because I actually look at it as a failure of hospitality in that I was too um, obsessed with my own vision of what wine should be and didn't have um, something that a person could go to. Uh, and, and again, I, I, with oven and shaker in that list, it was conforming, it was finding that happy meeting place between being able to make somebody feel safe and secure inside your space. Like, you know, people don't like feeling like idiots. They don't like going places to feel dumb. And so, um, and people can be nervous. You know, if you go into a space, you, you we as the servers, as the psalms, we, we, we're, we're comfortable in our space, you know, and, but, Somebody might not be, and and um, and I would say, well, it all exists within a particular cultural sphere. It's, it's still important to um, understand some basic elements of human kindness, and you know, again, thinking of it as like your own home. And, and uh, when we opened Cooper's Hall. <laughs> The friends and family night, I said, you know, everybody that's coming into the space for friends and family night, they're all friends and family of all of the partners, which means it's like your pain in the ass aunt who's coming to Thanksgiving. And yes, I know that they all suck, but they are our friends and they are our family. So like, let's, let's just treat it that way. And, and <laughs> so I, I, again, I, I, I guess my, my vision is a little messier than the sort of <clears throat> tidy Danny Meyer vision of it. Um, but hopefully it provides uh, experiences that are a little bit more authentic and um, can help shape my team a little bit beyond these walls to think conscientiously about the people that they're taking care of. Um, and then, of course, to know that they come come to me and speak frankly about what's happening inside our space as well. So, um, so I, I, 
and again, going back to wine lists, I, 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 I do love wine lists that are obviously cocky as hell and uh, built uh, to show off the intelligence of the buyer. They're fun. Uh, they're fun for me. You know, I don't. Uh, it's it's a lot more fun if you have a list like that and then have a buyer that shows up tableside and it's actually sweet and pleasant and kind of has that kind of counterbalance to the sort of like erudite aspect of a, a particular list. Um, but um, when I was in Barcelona last year too, going to all the, the natural wine bars, um, I was like, oh, hell, these people are actually having fun. And so I think that's another aspect of hospitality is having fun <laughs> and letting people have fun and having fun with wine and building a list that could be fun and might have joy and expression uh, and, uh, and being OK when, when your guest doesn't know their stuff. And, and uh, you know, uh, I keep bringing up Yellowtail because my teacher 12 years ago said, we need to talk about Yellowtail. We need to understand Yellowtail. We need to understand why it's the most popular wine in the world. What's its flavor profile? And if somebody says they love Yellowtail Shiraz, then we know where they're at. And then we can move forward from there. And we, we never denigrate somebody's taste. We never, and, and I, again, I know that's tough. I'm, I'm, I was a poet who became a sommelier, so like, I'm as arrogant as the next person. So, uh, so it, it, it can be difficult, but again, it's, that is hospitality. It's overcoming, it's overcoming your, your self-importance too. And doing, you know, like on a busy night of service, sometimes you don't have it left in you. And you're getting crushed and your kitchen's in the weeds and you have to go up to a table and you might not really have much left to offer them, and maybe their meal's 30 minutes behind, and it's coming up to that table with some dignity and showing them respect. And, and so it, I, I really feel like wine lists should, be, should carry some of that load, too, and, and how we approach the guest interaction with wine and wine lists should, should have some of that. What do you consider your role in terms of guest education? If someone doesn't know much about wine, do you consider your role to be an educator? Or do you consider your role to be finding them something that they will like within their kind of already known wine world? So that, that's the level of trust, right? So um, I think gaining that trust first is important and trying to find something within their comfort level so that you can gain that trust. You can see. Um, I mean, most of the wines that I served through the last 10 years, you know, for St. Jack, for instance, everything there was maybe a touch outside of people's comfort level, or, um, or I would just say Beaujolais, of course. You know, what's you just Beaujolais? I mean, you're in Lyonnais Bouchon, drink Beaujolais, and and getting people excited about that. Um, that 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 was a cheater's move, but it, it generally worked. Um, but nudging people forward, I, I'd say, you know, like that. If it's a one and done guest experience and they're only in for 
one visit, but you know, you see if faces come back, and then you get to build those relationships. I, I, I think also, you know, my year and a half on the on the retail side of things was really informative to that because you did have people coming back every other day or once a week, and you'd put a bottle in their hand, and they'd say, "Oh, I didn't like it. Oh, I I loved it. Oh, what did you like about it?" And start having those conversations with people. Um, so education, yes, but education within a conversation and within a relationship. And if you can't, you know, lord something over a person, uh, and, and, and sometimes it's tricky. Sometimes you're like, I thought I had this person's number, and I presented a wine to them, and they hated it. You know, it's like that. And, and, and there's no conceivable reason why they should not, you know, everything that you've served them before, and lines up with that profile and um, and uh, and so it's it's also understanding that sometimes it's just fickle you know sometimes people's tastes are just like one plus one does not equal two as far as people's taste profiles are concerned and so just being able to take that step back and and go go from there um, I buy wines for some of our investors too, and those that can be tricky because you're, you know, you're putting together like a seven thousand dollar order that's going to go in someone's cellar, and uh, then having people be like, "Oh, we trust you, we trust you, Joel," and then you're like, "Great," and then, uh, you know, you get pictures. They'll send you pictures from where they're drinking it, and. and a lot of most of it is like this is awesome, and then every once in a while it's like, whoa, this this is terrible, and you're like, thank goodness I only gave them three of those, you know. <laughs> uh, and, and and then uh, yeah, I, I, again, education comes from relationship, and some of that trust is also based on the amount of hospitality that you're giving to people. So if they feel safe and secure inside your space, if they feel like they aren't being talked down to, if they feel like they're being lifted up they feel like they're being celebrated, then you have a lot more opportunity to then invite them into a larger conversation about wine. And so, um, you know, a lot of times here, I'll just be up at the bar and we have all the wines on tap, and so I'll be chit-chatting with somebody, ask them what they're drinking, and I mean, I do have the luxury, I'm, I'm the owner, one of the partners, and. So I'll just throw a few things in front of them and, and let them, and then chit chat about the producers and and you know we we work with over over a hundred local producers so and I know them all so I can tell them something about them and tell them some of the stories and and uh, and 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 that's you know that's the big thing too I, I think um, say like even like with the natural wine movement uh, framing what you're about to present inside of a story so that they understand what they're about to receive. And so I guess that would be part of the education. It's like saying, um, if somebody, like say at St. Jack, orders, orders a wine that has some age on it, don't let them know that a wine that has age is going to taste like this as if they don't know it. But just start talking about the wine itself and about how excited you are about where it's at in its maturing process and how it's getting more savory and seeing you know some of those tertiary notes are coming out so that sure you're educating them maybe you know because maybe they 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 don't drink a lot of wine that has age and um, 
and then they can then make that decision again, like, oh, well, actually, I was looking for something a little bit more fruit forward, and I just wanted to spend four hundred dollars. You know, <laughs> you know, like, well, we can do that. <laughs> do you find when you're talking about wine with people that they respond more to you talking about the wine itself and its notes, or about the people behind the wine, the story behind the wine? Um, I mean. It's good to sprinkle in some wine notes, but like, tasting notes suck. Like, come on, like, so boring. So it's like, how do you get those into the conversation um, without obsessing about it? Not pulling like that. I have the psalm palette, and here, like, here's my like thesaurus of wine descriptions, like, nobody needs that in their lives, right? I mean, uh, I mean, and then also, like, just simple things, like, this wine has a ton of energy, or, you know, people would rather drink a wine that you say is kick-ass than, like, something that has, like, a huge laundry list of, um, so if you're like, this wine is kick-ass, the person who makes it, it's really cool, really sweethearted. Uh, you know, that that cares a lot about the environment or different things like that. I think I think people like that whole situation, and it sets it up. Again, it tees off the wine itself, um, so that they aren't like writing down, penciling down your tasting notes, and then they're tasting it and be like, oh yeah, I do, I do see that. Or, I don't see that. Uh, you're, it's not a, it's not a. It's not a, like a comparison of who can taste the wine better. It's like, let's, let's, let's celebrate kind of where this wine has come from, the energy that it has, what it's giving to us here today, as opposed to uh, just descriptions. Yeah. I don't actually taste the shoe leather in this wine. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> You're like, well, you should. It there are forest fires all around it. And so, <laughs> there's a lot of shoe leather on that wine, yeah. So you mentioned earlier you were, you were invited into the Cooper's Hall. So tell me about what the kind of, what the vision for this place was and, and what, your, what your role was as you were brought on board. Yeah, so we, um, I was brought on to be the front of the house manager, so for the restaurant aspect of it, and then to curate um, to build and, and create an extended guest tap list. So we have 22 guest wines at all times. So, um, so I, that was my primary role. Uh, of course, when we opened this space, right away people were like, I want to have a party here, I want to have a wedding here. And so our events program kind of became our bread and butter here. Um, one of the partners was our wholesale manager, and he went on to um, to open a different project. And so I, I took over wholesale as well, uh, took over everything. So I, I'm the operating partner now. So it went from me kind of having a specific restaurant-focused aspect to kind of coordinating with our winemaker, our ops manager here, who is our assistant winemaker, Adam Rack, um, to our one person on the wholesale team, 
doing all that, keeping track of all of the events and being in touch with my event director and, and making sure everything's going there and then regular tap room. Um, so, you know, that, that, that was pre-COVID, but we'll see, we'll see how things move forward uh, post-COVID. Before that, before COVID, which we'll talk about in a second here, what was it that was different? Is is different about Cooper's Hall? What 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 attracted people? What what besides besides this is an immense space? What other what was special and unique about it? Yeah. I mean, I'd say the building itself is so cool. Uh, this is uh, prefabbed in Detroit back in 1952 for the auto industry, and this was an auto shop for Ron uh, Ron Tonkin Auto <laughs> way back in the day. So I think the building itself has a lot of creative energy inside of it. It's actually one of the reasons why I wanted to be involved, uh, just so I could be in the space every day. Uh, I think spaces are important, give a particular energy. Um, I would say, though, just, again, I, right when we opened, somebody asked me if like the wine program here would appeal to onophiles. And I said, I could care less. I just want, I actually just want people who actually enjoy themselves to come into my space. Um, so I think, again, my, my attitude towards wine is hopefully happy, is joy, joyfulness and, and uh, approachability. You can order any of the wines by the number, so people don't have to stumble over names that they can't pronounce, like a Verstraminer or, uh, you know, even Marsan or Roussan or things like that, or Morved, you know, like, they can just default to the number, and so we, we did and do see a lot of people just ordering flights by number. Uh, we have two ounce pours in here too, because we can do everything small scale, because it's all on tap. Um, yeah, and then it just feels like a party. And so instead of having, you know, generally uh, having like Wu-Tang or Outcast blasting as opposed to something a little more like staid and whatever, it, uh, it is, or really pairing that up against wine and saying, like, actually, this is this is the the, the feeling I want around wine. This is this is actually what wine is about. Uh, it should have this kind of energy, and so yeah. You talked about your enthusiasm having Doug, Donnell, and, and John Paul in, in, in a keg here, as, yeah. it, as it were. Uh, tell me about what your what you want the wine list here to be, as opposed to wine lists you've made in the past. You talk about energy. You talk about what is it you want people to be able to experience here. You obviously have Oregon wine here. Uh, yeah, so a ton of Oregon wine. Uh, uh, it, keg wine is a great medium for local producers, where we can work directly with them. I mean, I filled. A rhinestones blend up from Scott Frank up on up on Sandy, which is two miles away. Drove it back here, put it on tap the same day. That wine only traveled two miles from its point of origin. The only handling it saw was in my car, and then me bringing it into the space to a temperature-controlled space. So there's there's in some ways part of it is this potential to have very a wine that's very minimally handled, um, that's presented. And so it, like, with, with this list, giving people the opportunity to taste things that they might never get to taste. Um, 
a single barrel from Doug Tonell for Gamay. You know, we tasted through his entire, his entire uh, cellar of Gamay for that one barrel. And, and we both took notes and we came up with what we both thought was the best one together. Having to be, getting to be able to experience the relationships that I've built, I guess, with people in the, in the, in the, in the valley. Um, I've also discovered that keg wine is a great medium for low sulfur wines as well, because it's such a anaerobic container. So stainless steel, super anaerobic. Um, uh, so as far as natural wines are concerned, I think it's actually a great way of expression, uh, these nat expressing these natural wines as well, um, except if there's, if there's reduction. <laughs> if there's a reduction, then keg wine amplifies reduction because it's so anaerobic. Um, and then, um, so I, yeah, part of it is just introducing and, and this goes back to any wine list. I'd like, I, making sure that there's a face behind the wine. And I think the, the very personal element of this list as well is, is that you know, people can like these wines. We can point them to go out and visit the valley then and, 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 and maybe even make a, shoot an email to someone on behalf of the guest and say, hey, they got our wine here, it went here. Um, but again, I, I think we also do things like keg younger wines to, or keg like I'll send a keg out with somebody and they do one keg sans souf before they hit before they hit their the rest of their tank with sulfur before bottling and they'll drive it from the winery to here goes from winery temperature control to that back fridge and gets plugged in right away and so just and, and that's something like those kinds of opportunities I've been thinking about more and more for the last three, two to three years. Uh, just saying like, oh hell, we let's have fun. Let's like let's have some real fun. But like let's let's also, you know, we get to go into cellars and taste through these things. And so like that's what this can become part of. Like let's let's taste something. You know, like we do Gamay Nouveaux here from people too. It's like. We get to taste wine through the sort of process. So like, let's utilize these kegs. I'm not going to do five kegs of that, but let's do one keg of that and run it as a super cheap special so that people can, can see what it feels like to taste something that I'm on the fence about, maybe the winemaker's on the fence about, but let's throw it in a keg and, 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 uh, and give people the opportunity to, to drink through something like that. And, and obviously, the two-ounce pours are great for that. So, <clears throat> so I, I, again, it's showing wine in its different, different stages. Um, I do hold back kegs too. So, like the Chloe Electric Blanc, I poured one off, but I have one that I'm going to hold on to for a year or two, and then pour that off later. Uh, just checking to see how things age in keg, see what's going on. Um, but yeah, I, I think trying to take some of the fussiness out of wine is always where I want to go with it. Um, do you find yourself seeking out producers more often, or do you find people? <laughs> do you find yourself seeking out producers more often, or do you find people coming to you and trying to get their <laughs> wine into, into, into the restaurant more often? Both. 
Um, I mean, more recently it's been people seeking me out, um, but definitely for the first six years, talking people into putting their wine in keg uh, was a huge process. And there's still people that push against it, uh, but I think, you know, when you're pouring single vineyard stuff from Doug Tonell or Clo Electric Blanc, it furthers the conversation a bit, you know, and, and also, uh, working with importers like uh, Damason Selections for the Closey Bone and Keg, and having uh, things like Lazora from Salamanca, <laughs> you know, tiny little region in Spain, uh, tiny micro producer, and pouring a Ruffette Tempranillo blend out of Keg here is, is super fun, and so. Um, encouraging, you know, up until now, being able to encourage other people on other markets to to work with keg programs so that we can get more interesting stuff in keg, so the kegs don't just become the property of southern glaciers and, uh, you know, industrial wine. So saying like, hey, no, we need to make a fight for it to happen to keep micro-producers on lists and, and um, You also, oh, go ahead, sorry. No, no, no. I was going to say, you also produce your own wine or create, have your own wine program that you're making here. So tell us a little bit about the wine that you're making for Cooper's Hall. And, and obviously, you talked a little bit before the camera about the, the, the bottles and how you're kind of altering the, the presentation also in stores as well as in, in here. Yeah, sure, yeah. So, I mean, so one of the big things with Cooper's Hall, obviously, is our own program, Cooper's Hall Wine. Um, we opened in 2014. and since then have saved over 400,000 bottles from the recycling bin. Uh, so single-use packaging is something that we're definitely really interested in and, and, and the sort of um, <clears throat> the kind of waste that we produce for a luxury product, right? I mean, again, it is a luxury product. Um, so there's a lot of, in my mind, ethical questions that we need to start asking ourselves as an industry. Uh, how much water are we using? <laughs> are, we, are our vineyards pretty much the cultural equivalent of, of golf courses, where we are dumping a ton of water onto properties for a product that's only affordable by a very small margin of our society? Um, Cool thing with Keg Wines, with Cooper's Hall, it is a mid-price brand. Um, so we are making quality wines, wines that are made ethically. Um, my partner, Phil Kramer, his vineyard property is, it was planted back in 1980 by the Dobbs family, all on its original rootstock. So it's in between Malala and Silverton, so in the East Valley, all hard-packed clay out there. Um, original rootstock, dry-farmed. Um, we are live cert, we are not organic. Always happy to have fist fights about that with people. But uh, so, you know, but also asking the real questions like, is, is this okay? Is, is live cert okay? Is, 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 are we actually cutting down on carbon emissions with, with keg wine? Like, and so being part of <clears throat> different. Um, studies, so you know, we were part of a study that 
um, looked at carbon emission reduction in stainless steel kegs versus plastic kegs. Uh, and so people look at plastic and get very upset because it's plastic. Uh, but that's because the steel isn't being smelted in their backyard. So uh, if the steel was being smelted in their backyard, then they might have a different opinion about <clears throat> how much worse plastic is than stainless steel. And so um, being vulnerable and being willing to be part of those studies, having our assumptions being challenged. Um, yeah, with the bottles, we partnered with um, OBRC with the uh, bottle drop initiative and um, the bottle drop refillables. And they, those were designed specifically for the beer industry. Uh, one thing, reason is that beer just has a faster turnaround in, in production and bottling. Um, but we wanted what our sort of like core message of cutting down on single-use packaging to extend to the to the shelves and it was really cool to be part of that program I believe the carbon emission reduction between those bottles and recycled bottles is 90 percent um, and the other 500 ml beer bottles um, they're actually all pulverized they're all made from pulverized glass here in Oregon so it's actually a 100 percent Oregon uh, product <laughs> through and through, uh, which is pretty neat. Um, and so um, right now, the glass is being cleaned in Montana, but hopefully they are going to uh, build a facility here in Oregon soon. We'll see. I'm sure the COVID will have set that back a bit. Although more breweries are bottling more than ever now because there's no draft outlet right now. So, and that, and same for us. We're we're pushing more of our production into those bottles due to COVID. So we talked about COVID a couple times. Let's let's talk about its overall impact for you. Obviously, we're in June 2020. It's three months in. Three months since things have started shutting down. Yeah. Uh, Portland is at the kind of at the tail end of trying to reopen. So uh, as Portland is kind of slowly reopening, mm -hmm. tell me tell me what the impact has been for for, for Cooper's Hall during COVID and and what your kind of short-term, long-term outlooks are now. Right. Um, well, I fired my entire team the day that I was supposed to go to Hawaii. So that was the beginning of COVID. Um, right now, we're holding steady with almost everybody laid off. Um, obviously, most of our bread and butter was private events. and. Uh, those are really challenging right now. Particularly, we are in Multnomah County, so we're probably in the most restrictive of the counties up to date. Um, you know, we, we had a bride cancel two days ago. She's from Alabama, and she, her family lives here, but she found out what the restrictions were for Oregon and said, actually, I'm gonna cancel and <clears throat> have my wedding in Alabama where I can do what I want. And, um, we don't, I mean, I obviously agree with these restrictions and these precautions. It would be nice if we had a more uniform country approach to it so that things like that wouldn't happen to our state specifically who's taking a more cautious route. Um, as I might have said, 
because we are a keg-focused winery, we our our entire wholesale was also restaurants as well. So that ground to a stop. Luckily, we had launched the bottles right before, uh, but still, that it can't compete with accounts like the zoo, uh, the convention center, <laughs> all the, the hundred restaurants in Portland that we service. And, um, so that volume just disappeared. Um, right now we're seeing a slow purchasing from the suburbs. Um, actually Safeway just picked up all of our bottles, which is pretty, every for statewide, which is pretty amazing. Safeway's trying to rebrand themselves as more environmentally friendly, and so that actually worked out for our brand. Um, we had actually thought a place like New Seasons might champion it more, but I think that wasn't their focus right now. So, um, so the, you know, interesting surprises like that. Um, we are being incredibly cautious about our reopen. Uh, we have a few micro weddings in July, uh, like 25 people. Um, and then in August, we have some bigger ones. And we, we won't open until August at the very earliest. Um, we don't feel like it's ethically responsible to bring our team back to make less money than they would on unemployment at a much higher risk. It is very tricky to think about putting my team's safety and health at risk for a luxury item, which is what dining is, or in a place like this, it is for sure. Uh, and so, so that's you know, those are kind of soul-searching things that I'm thinking about. Um, I know that we do have to get back to business, and, and my team will need to make an income. And, um, but I think it's going to be a pretty, pretty tricky way forward. Um, we don't want to be part of a start and stop scenario as well. So, uh, so that's that's a, a huge thing for us. You also, I know, readjusted kind of on the fly for other reasons. Tell me about Portland specifically. Uh, the last month or so here, you were kind of had a plan and then you altered it again. So tell us kind of about that and about that, the decision to, to change again on the fly. Uh, well, I mean, it all had to do with PPP funding and uh, uh, a lack of unified government response or coherency uh, with with how the terms of forgiveness worked for that for that small business loan, and so we we did try to reopen, brought everybody back, and the terms of forgiveness changed, went from being an eight-week term to December 31st. So we, um, I mean, we were losing pretty much losing money every day anyway, um, even with with the payroll protection, and so we. We again stopped it again and laid everybody off again. And I know I'm not the only small business that that happened to. I know that there's people who got their PPP funding in May and had it all spent before mid-June and uh, and are closing because <clears throat> they had to spend the money when there wasn't 
any viable business to be had. And so um, we're fortunate to have been able to hold on to half of our payroll protection. And uh, that can, that, hopefully that'll help. What, are the, what does the future for restaurants look like, not just here, but in general? What, what, are rest, what is going to happen to restaurants as things start to reopen? I mean, I, don't, I, I probably with the majority of people who say it's going to be pretty awful until, until there's a vaccine or some sort of greater way to reassure the public. Um, I think luckily in Portland, we don't have to deal with people screaming at our servers because they're wearing masks, but I know that's happening elsewhere. Um, I am worried, you know, through the COVID experience with people wearing masks, um, having this even greater disparity between guests and server experience where the server is masked and faceless <clears throat> and the, the guest gets to be autonomous and do whatever the hell they want. Um, I think it, I'm hoping it doesn't, but I fear already just from what I've heard from other regions that it's reinforcing this idea of subservience that you can scream at somebody and treat them like they're not a human being. Uh, <clears throat> we already deal with that all the time in the restaurant industry. You know, I had to deal, I remember with St. Jack one time somebody called and I they were complaining about one of my servers, and I, and I said, you just want me to fire this person, don't you? They, 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 they offended you somehow, and you're trying to call to get them fired. And I was like, well, I actually happened to be there that night, and I know how you treated my guests, my, my, my server, and I'm not gonna fire my server. <laughs> and, uh, you know, which, which prompted me to have a staff discuss meeting and say, Anytime anything goes south at a table, you come get me. You won't be in trouble if you come get me. You might be in trouble if you don't, because then I don't know what's happening. Um, <clears throat> so I, 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 as we reopen, I, I do worry about advocating for my team. I feel like, again, we're very fortunate. We have a huge space here. Uh, but hearing things that are happening outside of our market really worries me. Um, I see a lot of people advocating for more equality and stuff within the restaurant industry and, and I'm just so scared that all of that's going to get knocked back, you know, like we, we have so many invisible people in the back of the house that need to have more visibility and be better taken care of. And I, with a 40% minimum reduction in restaurants in Portland, I, I'm worried, you know, I, I, I think Cooper's Hall can make it. And I'm hopeful that we will push through. It's going to suck. But, um, I'm, I'm worried at large for a lot of the progress that was being made in the industry, a lot of, a lot of health that was being gained in the industry. And I, I just see some of that being set back. 
So thinking of the Oregon wine industry kind of at large, uh, what are the biggest changes you've seen in Oregon wine since you've become part of the industry? Mm -hmm. and, and where is it now? Where do you think it's going? What's kind of the, the, the trajectory Oregon wine is on? Um, well, it's definitely a little bit more adventurous now, right? I mean, it's not, it's not completely dominated by the Willamette Valley. So I'd say people are more interested in Rogue and Applegate than they used to be, and they're more interested in the Columbia Gorge than they used to be. And I think those are really great things because it creates uh, more varietal diversity and, and hopefully, particularly as things are getting priced out in the Willamette Valley, there's still entry points for people still trying to get into the industry. Um, I remember moving to Portland in 2000 and everybody was a front of the house server so that they could be in a band. And nowadays it feels like everybody's waiting tables so they can be a, a winemaker. So I think there's a lot of people that are you know, making wine as a side hustle a lot more. I mean, obviously, like, you had John Groeschel, uh, you had uh, Matt Burson with Love and Squalor, who were kind of getting into wine via the restaurant industry. Uh, Marcus Goodfellow, you know. Um, <clears throat> but now it's like, a given, you know, it's like, uh, you know, I have this side project with Evan Martin, the Sadness and Get Me and Sadness and Chardonnay, and I, I, I was talking to Mike, Michael Garofola, who also has Cutter now, and I was like, you know, in Portland, if you say that you're a Psalm and you have a wine project, everybody just rolls their eyes at you. Like, of course you do. And, uh, you know, the further you get away from Portland, like, the more exciting it is for people. And, and I said, I had a, a buddy who went to Oxford, and he said, you know, if you're in Oxford or anywhere surrounding Oxford and you go to Oxford, no one could give a shit. It only matters the further you get away from Oxford. And so, uh, so I think, you know, that sort of Psalm winemaker thing is, is pretty played out. And like, I'd love my project with Evan, and I think it's so special. And, um, but I, I can't help but feel a little bit self-conscious about it just because I know how all of my peers feel about some one winemaker collaborations, but uh, even beyond that, I'm still going to keep going with it. Um, I, I think that diversity is hopefully something that we're moving towards a bit more, you know, in all aspects. Um, I hope that we start engaging more thoughtfully about. Uh, migrant worker rights. And um, you know, I've been working with Virginia Garcia Memorial Trust this last year and led a panel discussion last summer about this. But um, it's, it's really awesome that we do fundraisers every year. But that's not enough. Like, real systemic change needs to happen. Uh, it is ridiculous that some of the most expensive fruit <laughs> in our region is being picked by people who cannot afford health care. And that, that should make us all really angry, and angry enough to do something. 
And so, I, I mean, I hope, and again, I fear that COVID is going to push this back because when people struggle, people don't enact change as quickly. Uh, but I, I, I hope that we start moving towards real uh, change as far as how how our industry works as far as who's who's doing a lot of the heavy lifting are, is actually rewarded and taken care of. Um, but I think conversations are being had about that. Um, obviously, water use is a huge thing. It's great to see more people pressuring growers into dry farming. Uh, again, I, I do believe we're a luxury item and. We really have to take away the sort of ethical responsibility of making something that only a few people can afford. Even you know, Cooper's Hall wine that <clears throat> sits on the shelf for ten bucks for a 500 ml, you know, th that translates to fifteen bucks for a 500 for a 750. That that's prohibitive for a lot of people still, and, uh, and something I think of as a low mid price point, you know, because I have a stupid psalm view of pricing. Uh, and so I, 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 I hope that we start taking a hard look at that. Um, and, and I think we are. I think, I think you know, um, talking to people, um, Jessica Pierce with Pierce Wines did her last bottling in, our, in the 500 ml, so she joined it. Uh, but then she was talking to uh, Erica and Landon and Ken Paolo, and they started talking to people and trying to push for a universal reusable bottle in the wine industry, people giving up ego in order to better the environment uh, is a huge thing. So again, I know it wouldn't be for every wine, but you know, we all know as buyers that everybody wants all of their current vintage to be purchased and drank in the, in, in, the, in the same year, as far as restaurants are concerned, unless we have some sort of crazy deep seller. But none of us has that. But, and so you know, there's this sort of like myth that, and you know, this goes to the, the keg wine, too. Like People ask me all the time, how, how, how does it age well? It's like, why do you care? You don't drink aged wine. No one ages wine. Like, give me a break. Uh, so we know that we're consuming all, and we want it all to be consumed within a year so we can sell our next vintage, right? Because we don't have a ton of capital. Uh, and uh, so we need, to, we need to become aware of that. And, and, and again, you know, with, with the pushing for a, 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 a bigger reusable bo bottle that can become more brand organ, I, I, I would love, and I think it's happening a bit, but I would love the Willamette Valley and Oregon overall to be known just like the Loire Valley in France, you know, for sustainable uh, practices and kind of this, even if it's untrue completely, you know, like, oh, I bought something from the Loire Valley. It must be natural. It must be biodynamic. It must be organic. Um, but that'd be great. That'd be great. You know, that'd be great for us as, a, as far as consumers outside of Oregon. Um, and it's great pride to have for us inside of Oregon as well. So that's what I'm pushing for. <laughs> so hopefully, you know, and I know other people are too. So, um. 
So the last question I have for you is something you've, you've already kind of answered, but I want to ask it just so you can maybe give a more, give an answer on the actual question. Uh, what is wine's role in society? What, what role does wine play in society? Oh, sure. <laughs> um, well, it makes people happy, right? Um, I think it it is a gesture towards overlife. So you know, it's a expression that Seamus Haney, the Irish poet, uses about poetry that you know, when two words rhyme it, in a poem, you've already moved towards overlife. You've you've done something that is unnecessary, but it's it's pretty. It's beautiful. Um, so I think that wine has within its nature that element of overlife, and obviously um, it is something that brings a table together, that, um, but it's something that eases people's minds and lets them talk more freely. Um, obviously it can, it can be a hallmark of aristocracy and personal ego. And we see that all the time. And I, I um, but what I advocate for, and, you know, even for the most expensive wines, is, 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 for, is for joy and, and, and for, um, for overlife. It, uh, when my wife was pregnant with our children, I would buy a bottle of champagne for each month. And we were committed to drinking those bottles at any given time, not, not a special occasion, just maybe when we were like elbow deep in baby poop or, and just frustrated and neither of us were feeling great or sexy or anything. And, and you open that bottle of champagne and, and you feel glamorous, you feel great. And, uh, and I love that about wine. I love that. You can be sipping on a glass of wine and the world can be falling apart, but for that one moment you have like sort of glamorous aspect to your life and it frames it in a romantic setting. And so um, it has the potential, you know, towards building a romantic vision of life, I'd say, <clears throat> for those of us working within it. Um, but it needs to be, again, I we, we do need to question these sort of aristocracy of wine and the pretension around wine. And we do need to break down the ways that people can put themselves above other people by what they know about wine or <laughs> don't know about wine. But at the end of the day, who cares? It's wine. It's great, it's wonderful, but like, it doesn't give you any, any, any reason to have an ego. That's all the questions that I have for you. Is there anything I didn't ask that I should have, anything we didn't cover? Should no, I think I've been talking quite a lot. So. <laughs> That's sort of the goal here, okay. so I appreciate that. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for your yeah. time, for your thoughts, yeah. for yeah. hosting us here in this awesome space. Yeah. Hoping you get back up and rolling pretty soon. And Absolutely. Thank you so much. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. 
And thank you to all our supporters, partners, donors, and interviewees who have helped make our project a success. Be sure to check out our website at OregonWineHistoryArchive.org for more interviews, photographs, wine labels, and more. And stay tuned for more interviews as we tell the story of Oregon wine. The Oregon Wine History Archive podcast is brought to you from the Oregon Wine History Archive at Linfield University. With a very special thank you to all the Linfield Archive students who have contributed to these oral history interviews over the years.